Uh, The talk tonight is about love and understanding. There was a great uh, hermit that lived in China. I think it was in the um, 14th century, and his name was Stonehouse. He wrote, Leaves in the stream move without a plan. Clouds in the valley drift without design. Once I closed my eyes, everything was fine. I opened them again because I love mountains. I think of that as um, something that we aspire to. Once I closed my eyes, everything was fine. That's the um, seeking. Yeah, that's the going inside, deep inside to understand. And then I open them again because I love mountains, you know, to be able to bring our understanding and love back into the world is a great thing. So not needing things to be a certain way, unconditional acceptance is uh, understanding. That means that we're in alignment with how things are because we can't make much happen in this world in terms of control. But to choose to love anyway, to choose to love even though we can't control, you know, this is uh, unconditional love. So the Buddha taught four Brahma Viharas, not just one. Uh, So as we do the loving kindness practice, the first divine home, we will tend to, of course, touch into the other three. So the first is loving-kindness or metta. Uh, This is establishing the openness of heart. The second is compassion, karuna. And this is opening this openness of heart toward the pain in the world and caring about it. Uh, The third empathetic joy or mudita is orienting this openness of heart toward the joy in this world and appreciating it. And the fourth, upekka, you know, this is this deep equanimity or unconditional acceptance of how things are because that's the truth, how things are. So this doesn't mean that um, we're accepting how things are because we're condoning them. We're accepting how things are because that's how things are. It doesn't mean, like in the question this morning, that we don't move to change things, um, but we hopefully, out of this deep acceptance and out of the loving-kindness, care about the pain, the empathetic joy that we're not um, reacting to the joys and sorrows of this world with more 
sorrow, with more fear, with more aversion, with more clinging or control, instead of reacting to the joys and sorrows in this world with more manipulation, more control, what we're attempting to do is respond in a very alive way, in a very spontaneous way, not rote. So if you think of love and compassion, empathetic joy as a healthy connection, healthy relationship with how life is, it's really understanding that makes that healthy connection possible. And then if you think of wisdom as um, being with things as they are, with a deep understanding, it's wisdom that makes a healthy letting go possible. When I was sitting for many years with Sayada Upandita, a great teacher from Burma, he would liken the spiritual practice to like a, um, a bottle, a glass bottle. And the belly of the bottle is very, very wide and round and big. And it has a very long neck and a very tiny hole at the top. So he described the meditation practice as having a pitcher of water and this empty (laughs) glass bottle with this big belly and small hole. Um, And the practice is like pouring water from that pitcher into this jug. So what would happen if we do that? What I mean, a lot of water spills out, right? If you think of like one day of practice, it will feel like a lot of water is spilling out. But once in a while... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, something happens, and you can't control that. That's why I encourage people in the morning, punch in, in the evening, punch out, and just see what happens. And really, when I come in the hall and I see everybody, you know, my criteria for good practice is that you're still here. Look how good everybody's doing, you know. And the water, drops will get in, and you'll feel it. It's like, ooh. Powerful. Of course we wish for more drops to go in quicker. Of course we do. It's okay to want it to go faster. (laughs) It's okay for us to want more glimpses than we get. You know, we have to have great understanding for that. You don't want to try to get rid of that. That just makes it harder. It's more just when you have that desire for it to go faster. I always just say to myself, of course you do. (laughs) You know, it's okay. Sayada Upandita also said to me my first day with him, kind of like a very tough, you know, Zen master, he said, uh, It takes a lot of hard work for wisdom to penetrate the heart. So that's the drops, right? The drops going in that glass bottle. You know, it's not like we punch in and then we totally give up in the day. 
and it's not like we can try too hard. It's this incredible balance of just showing up, doing the best we can, not giving up, not trying too hard. But of course, sometimes we, we go through those pulls of it getting too hard and giving up or you know, trying too hard, getting too tight, getting too loose. It's like it's okay. We don't find balance without losing balance again and again and again. Being out of balance is normal. So each Brahma Vihara, each, each divine abode requires understanding. So one of the reasons that we say loving kindness rather than love is that when we throw the word love around, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily imply that there's deep wisdom in it. So loving kindness actually means that there's deep wisdom in the loving kindness. That's what makes it unconditional. I have a friend that um, has a lot of grandchildren in um, Honolulu, and her youngest grandchild um, was in the back seat of the car with her youngest grandson. They're they're really young. One's like four, one's two. And their grandpa had died that day. Um, and she was trying to explain to the oldest one, you know, that, oh, they call him Papa. Papa just died. And um, so she was expecting, you know, maybe some sadness with this four-year-old. And the four-year-old was just sort of sitting there thinking. And she was sort of surprised that there wasn't much talking. And then finally this little girl said, um, so when are, when are they going to have the funeral? And my friend was like, what do you mean? He just died. You know, we haven't even thought about it yet. And she said, well, when are you going to go through all his stuff? <laughs> and she's like, what do you, what do you mean? Well, he just died. You're supposed to be kind of sad. It's your grandfather, you know. And then she said, um, can I have Grandpa's pimple cream? <laughs> She's four, you know, like where, she didn't even know. Like, why does this kid want pimple cream? You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like somehow she really liked this pimple cream in the bathroom, you know, just has been staring at it for years. You know, that's conditional love. Yeah. <laughs> And then the younger boy was like, what's, what's death? What's going on? And, and this little girl said, oh, you, you'll never understand that. You know, like just... Uh, so if you need to lighten up, you know, just think about pimple cream. <laughs> so why is it difficult to tune into unconditional love? You know, we want it. We all need unconditional love. We need it. We'll die without it. Um, So if you think of the spiritual journey like a flower opening, great time of year to be practicing because there's so many flowers around, so many flower buds. And it's like when the flower opens, you know, we know this intellectually, but 
of course we would want just to feel the pain, I mean, just to feel the pleasure in this world when we open and the joy. It goes against our ego, our little mind, uh, to, to really understand that when we open, we open to the joy and sorrow, the pleasure and pain. Because not because that's how we would design it, but that that's how it is. So the degree to which we can withstand pain and pleasure, joy and sorrow, is the degree to which we open. So hence, you know, loving kindness being love with understanding. Compassion means that we're orienting toward pain, caring about it. That requires even more understanding. The third you know, empathetic joy, to really appreciate somebody's joy in this world without wanting some of it or jealousy. The Buddha said that was very rare, harder than compassion for us, most of us. That's why it's third. It requires even more understanding of interconnectedness. And then the fourth, unconditional acceptance being being deeply accepting of the joys and sorrow in this world takes even more understanding. In the chant that we've been doing every night, I think it's really important to notice second to the last paragraph, which is translated as whether standing walking, sitting, lying down, or whenever awake, one should develop this mindfulness. This is called divinely dwelling here. So sometimes we don't really remember that developing metta or tuning into metta is cultivating mindfulness. Develop this mindfulness, a heart of boundless loving friendliness, or this cultivating a boundless heart. It's important not to underestimate the power of intention. It's like the power the power of our own mind or heart to just notice the intention, may my heart abide in loving kindness. This is a resolve. This is a force of purity in the heart. And just that we don't see, you know, the result immediately. Um, It's such a powerful intention. And just see what happens. Make this resolve or intention when you feel some energy in your practice, sitting or walking, and notice what happens. It's said that Metta, or loving-kindness, isn't loving-kindness until we truly understand somebody. So clearly wanting the pimple cream (laughs) wasn't exactly being connected, right? It was making an object out of someone. We were, you know, neediness. I use that example because it's light, but really, when we need and want something from somebody, of course that's how we can be, but it's not exactly tuning into somebody, yeah? 
understanding where they are. And it hurts when we finally wake up to the fact that we're making an object out of somebody. Because we don't like to be made an object out of. So the way into ourselves or the way into the heart of another is very unique for each one of us. It's important to, as we do this, as we do this practice, to really tune into, well, what is it that is my entry point into my heart? Some years ago, when I was teaching in New Mexico, there was a student there that had practiced like for 20 or 25 years. Um, and when we taught the empathetic joy, it was like he finally connected with a Brahma Vihara. He'd been trying to do metta for 20, 25 years and couldn't connect. So that's often why we really try to emphasize all four, because for some people, the entry point into their heart is appreciating joy. For me, it's, it's caring about suffering. Because awareness of suffering is something that comes easy for me. Caring about it with other people is easy. Caring about it for myself is more challenging. That's where the resistance is. That's where the karmic knot is. But when I make that, when I get through that barrier, I feel here. I feel connected. It's much easier than for me to do loving kindness, mindfulness practice, anything. When I, when I find that entry point into my own heart, I call it finding the heart. But it's not like that every moment or every day. Sometimes it is appreciating joy. So it's, it's like it's very important to kind of get to know this. this um, another way to say that would be, give me all the joy in this world because I want to appreciate it. Give me all the pain in this world. I want to care about it. When you grasp the meaning of this, it's extraordinary. Because instead of feeling like um, miserly in the heart about these practices, it's like as your heart gets stronger and stronger to care about suffering, because it's pleasant to care about pain, your heart gets stronger if you take the right dose and you can actually care about more of it and more of it and more of it. I want to read a very odd poem. Yeah, I didn't bring it. (laughs) It's called Cow. And I'm reading this partly because I love the... um, image of the Buddha giving of the experience of loving kindness being likened to when a mother cow looks at a newborn calf, looks at her newborn calf. I find that such a powerful image. This is a little different take on it. Okay. Cow. I want to be a cow and not my mother's daughter. I want to be a cow and not in love with you. (laughs) It's a good one. I want to feel free, to feel calm. I want to be a cow who never knows the kind of love 
you fall in love with. A queenly cow with hips as big and sound as a department store. A cow the farmer milks on bended knee, who when she dies will feel dawn bending over her like lawn to wet her lips. I want to be a cow, nothing fancy, a cargo of grass, a hammock of soupy milk, who's floating and rocking in dribblings undisturbed by the echo of hooves to the city, of crunching boots, of suspicious-looking trailers parked on verges, of unscrupulous restaurant owners who stumble pink-eyed from stale beds into a world of lobsters and warm telephones, of streamlined Japanese freighters ironing the night, heavy with sweet desire like bowls of jam. The Tibetans have 85 words for states of consciousness. This dozy cow I want to be has none. (laughs) She doesn't speak. She doesn't do housework or worry about her appearance. She doesn't roam. Safe in her fleet of shorn white bull like friends, she needs and loves and is loved by only this, the farm I want to be a cow on, too. Don't come looking for me. Don't come walking out into the bright sunlight looking for me, black in your gloves and stockings and sleeves and large hat. Don't call me the tractor man. Don't call the neighbors. Don't make a special fruitcake for when I come home. I'm not coming home. I'm going to be a cowman's counted cow. I'm going to be a cow, and you won't know me. (laughs) Kind of a cool aspiration. I think sometimes we make love very complicated. You know, it's like, that's why I like the image of the cow. You know, if there was a, a baby that came in here, crawling in here, sat in front and started crying, and we were wondering, well, what is unconditional love? It would not be complicated somebody would eventually come and just hold the baby until it stopped crying. And that's that's love. You know, it's that simple that we just lose touch with our connection with ourselves or another. You know, that just simple simplicity of caring. For those of you who remember the prison riots at Attica, um, there was a man in prison named George Jackson, and he wrote a book um, called Soldad Brothers. Uh, And in it, he talks about uh, what it's like to really strain 
um, to receive kindness. And he said that nobody appreciates kindness more than the desperate person. And just, you might reflect on that, like when you have been the most desperate, like how receiving some kindness at those times usually brings up the most gratitude. Um, And I I really want to emphasize this, especially in regard to benefactor or dear friend. It says that they really are a lifeline. You know, if, if you look at how dry sometimes life can be. It's like, where is the juice? Where is the connection? Well, whenever we have the gift of being seen by anybody, especially in the human world, it's like that kindness is like how we keep going. That's how powerful it is. That's how much we need that. There's a um, sayadaw in Burma that is kind of more like my personality. I was waiting my whole life to meet somebody <laughs> like that in the spiritual world. You know, he's kind of bouncy and fun and not too serious. He's not serious. Um, and when I first met him, I went into this room where he was, and he just jumped up and down, and it's like he's like, she really appreciates me. She really appreciates me. And I was like, yeah, I really appreciate you. And I just was like so touched by like his naming that he really liked being appreciated. You know, it's like, do you do that when you feel appreciated? You wouldn't be that open probably like, oh, wow, somebody appreciates me. Great. You don't necessarily think of that as full enlightenment. But he's so amazing. It's like when another time I walked in, he was like, That means I'm so glad to see you. And it's like, oh, you know what it feels like when somebody gives you that look. I'm so glad to see you. It's like we feel connected with. It's just so important. I heard of this program for children in um, America, in the libraries, at least I know it's in this state, um, where if young children are having a hard time learning to read, that they've trained dogs to listen to children reading stories. Now, I think that might be a sad comment on our culture. Woo! You know, it's really can sound pretty tragic. Uh, I mean, honestly, just think about it. We're training dogs to like help children learn to read. Whoa! You know, it's like that's uh, pretty serious. But on the other hand, it's working. <laughs> At least somebody's listening. You know, <laughs> the German shepherds. The the Dobermans, the Dachans, you know, all dogs can be trained to listen to children, unlike us humans. Uh, 
that's how important it is to learn to read. Something that fundamental that we have to be listened to. You know, this is metta, this is loving kindness. It's like so important. So when we shift to um, loving kindness for ourselves, it's like that ability to just get that we are really mostly disconnected from ourselves. And that the metta is like a certain kind of listening. It's a certain kind of attunement. It's like, yes, I'm worthy of attention. Just, just that. It's like, not if I am this, or not if I am that, but just that, yes, I'm, I'm worthy of this kind of care and attention. And then so is everyone else that's born on this planet. You know, it's, it's a beautiful practice. And then when we shift to compassion, caring about pain, which hopefully you've already been doing at times if you have pain in the body, if you have pain in the heart, emotional pain, if you have pain in the mind, it's like the metta, you don't have to change any phrases, you don't have to change anything all you do is change that listening to just a a care for the pain. Again, it's a very beautiful possibility. And one of my favorite things about compassion is that the Buddha taught that the proximate cause for the appearance of compassion is feeling overwhelmed by suffering. It's such good news the proximate cause for the appearance of compassion is feeling helpless in the face of suffering. And I noticed today a lot of people were really, at t- you know, not everybody, but there was like a tuning into kind of that bottomlessness of suffering. I've had that so many times on retreat where something just opens up and it's, it's the opposite of tuning into all the joy in this world. It's really tuning into the pain um, and it means the heart has opened. And I used to feel like something was so wrong with me when I would feel that as a kid, you know, and there was really no, <laughs> for in my childhood, there was just no sense that there was help for that. But to really grasp that that is how you get to compassion, to be willing to feel that level of, oh, the little ego can't do it. Compassion can only be compassionate. And it's like you just open and just ask for help and compassion will come if you make space for it. And I think of all of our karmic knots as really just a learned resistance to a certain kind of pain. It's like one of my favorite karmic knots is fear of rejection. It's a good one. You know, and it's like I can see everybody else's, you know, fear of rejection, no problem. You know, it's like, gee, what's their problem? You know, it's okay. You know, but if it's mine, it's like somehow this resistance sets in and it's like I don't even know it's there. I just know, you know, something really hurts. (laughs) So... 
when that happens for me, I would see, especially when I started doing some retreats, that whenever that resistance would set in, I would be merciless with myself. Just merciless. Just like it's like feeling like so pathetic, I can't open to this, what's wrong with me, you know, I'm still doing this, can't be with this. It's like if you ever hear yourself going, I'm still, I did 30 years of therapy, I did 500 years of meditation, I've probably been doing meditation since the Buddha was here every lifetime. You know, it's like all that like self-hatred is just a defense. It's just a protection. So that what? We don't feel vulnerable. Because, yeah, anybody can reject us, unfortunately. It's a pretty vulnerable world, yeah? And then, yes, can we choose to open to love anyway, even though we know we can get hurt? That's hard. You know, what makes us unable to feel love? It's the fear of being unlovable. So it just, it takes time to have that spaciousness to just go, oh, I can care about this. And the care is pleasant. And an example I've been giving over some years, and it's probably not the best example, but um, say I came in here, and I had a big sore on my hand, pussy, gross, you know, and kind of came in here. And maybe somebody kind of comes up and just kind of smiles, pretends it's okay. But really, they're indifferent. They've disconnected. They might as well be on Mars. They're standing there, but I can feel like they're not connected. That isn't really very helpful. And then if somebody, like, comes up and starts sobbing and rolling on the ground, like, oh, isn't that, I'm so sorry, right? You know, it's like, that's not really that helpful. You know, you can feel bad for them, but, you know, it's not, it's still what, it doesn't feel good, right? It doesn't feel connected. Compassion isn't bringing the attention inside the area of the pain and drowning in it. Drowning in grief or self-pity or whatever it is. And compassion isn't disconnecting. Compassion is the awareness is actually not drowning in the pain and caring from the outside. It's pleasant. And it's such a gift to learn to do it. And you can practice it sitting here. At the least, if you sit long enough, you experience pain in your butt. Right? You have to. Like, that's the design of the course. (laughs) You're supposed to eventually feel pain in the butt. You know, it's like, you know, it's meant to be part of the practice. It's like you can learn on a very basic level to care about that. If you learn to care about that when you feel a betrayal, then you can learn to care about that. If there's a rejection, you can learn to care about that or whatever. It's like, this is um, really important because there's pain in this world, pleasure in this world. And the compassion is so necessary for learning how to be in this world with some dignity and grace. 
When I was in British Columbia this um, spring, I had mentioned already, the, the weather was so much better than it usually is. And in my kind of pattern of teaching, I travel a lot, and I had come, you know, from Thailand, like Hawaii, to British Columbia. But still, you know, there was weather. And one day I was out for a walk, and it had been sunny for a few days. And I felt, you know, I could see these clouds rolling in, you know, the dark gray northern clouds and the kind of, I don't know if you notice it at all, but this melancholy, there can be a melancholy feeling with that kind of weather. Um, and I was walking along, and I, it was just like sad. And I kept trying to talk myself out of it. It was like in my head I was going, it's just rain. It's just gray clouds. It's, it's fine, Michelle. Stop being sad, right? But sadness was there. And I felt this unbearable sadness. It was like amazing. And it was so intense. I went into where I was staying and I laid on the bed and I actually like pulled the covers over my head. It was like, wow, you know, and I kept trying to talk myself out of it. And then finally it was like, oh, it's just unbearable sadness. Can I just be with this? And I think that Those are the most interesting times, at least for me in practice, where I can't find any particular reason for something that's happening. So there isn't a whole lot of story about it. And eventually it's like I can be with that experience like weather. It's like all experience is like weather. You know, happiness comes, joy comes, sadness comes, sleepiness comes. It's like deep equanimity comes. You know, an awakening comes. It's like, and then, you know, a black hole comes. It's like, it's just, this is life. It's just this change is happening. And we keep trying to talk ourselves out of whatever's happening rather than be with it. And if you can kind of start having that relationship of it's okay, even if if there's resistance, not wanting what's happening to be happening, that's a large part of our experience. It's part of the weather pattern. And I noticed that day just that there can be that awakening to this pendulum swing of the mind where we'll feel like totally elated and confident. You know those times? And that's when you want to, you plan that you're going to, you know, do the next ten, three-month courses. And, you know, it's like, it's like okay, I'm going to ordain and, and then three hours later, one's totally hopeless and despondent. And it's like, how many more minutes are there <laughs> to the retreat? And, you know, we all know how many days are left. You just do. It's like when it's hard, you count the seconds. And when it's great, you can't wait for more. And it's like part of a long retreat is noticing again how liberating it is to be trapped in samsara. You know, it's like the more you become aware of that's a trap, energized, happy, confident, despondent, hopeless, all in relationship to pleasant and unpleasant. Okay, when it's going good, I'm a good yogi. I'm the best yogi. You know, it's going great. And then when purification is happening and we're doing metta and all of a sudden we're hating 
somebody. It's like that's bad practice until we go, oh, anger, ah. It's important to see it. It's like the liberation comes from working with it. So I I hope that we all know, you know, that it's very humbling. Humbling and mind-boggling. Awesome, auspicious, a day of practice. Because it's full. It's full of everything. I was going to try to touch into each Brahma Vihara um, empathetic joy, appreciating joy. I tend to think of um, our access to joy comes the more we accept imperfection. It's just the more we try to do everything right and make things perfect, usually the more unhappy we are. And I, um, I tend to believe that gratitude is dependency acknowledged. And in, in terms of spirituality, gratitude is the deepest emotion we can feel. So if you look at the times when we feel gratitude, which is usually when we're the most joyful, it's really when we've allowed our hearts to be touched. We've allowed ourselves to be touched by the universe in some way we've received. And certainly being human um, means that we have access to pleasure. And if we're aware of pleasure, if we're aware of enjoyment, and we're aware of receiving enjoyment, whether we're receiving kindness or the sound of a bird or some food, you know, whatever it is that we're receiving, um, it can either shift to clinging and holding on. And then again, we make an object out of a person or something in more expectation or we can be grateful. And this is a practice. It's a practice that you can cultivate, again, on retreat, where you might be outside and you just, you just, something, it's like a drop goes in. We've received a bit of the universe, and maybe it's just by watching a chipmunk. Because it's kind of hard to be depressed and watch chipmunks. You know, they're just so cute. You know, and if you really receive it, but it, that's just one example. You can just receive some of the food the cooks have cooked for us or whatever. It's like you can't expect to be in that place all the time, but when we do receive, there's this capacity for gratitude. And it feels wonderful to be grateful. And you know, we get caught again in wanting more and it not being good enough. And the Buddha taught that there's like this stream of dissatisfaction that runs like an undercurrent in our minds and hearts. 
And really the antidote for that is just to be able to receive in very small amounts what actually is. So if you really receive the sound of a bird, it will be just enough. If you really receive one bite of food and really take it in, it's enough. So it's this, this is one reason why we slow down and retreat, so that we can just really start living, truly living. It's a great gift <laughs> to be able to be here. I'm going to shift um, to equanimity. Um, when I was in Thailand this year, and I was flying from Bangkok to Chiang Mai, and there was a speech in the airplane magazine by the king. And for those of you who don't know Thailand very well. The people in Thailand really love their king. Uh, And I have always appreciated that they love their king. Uh, But I got to see in northern Thailand where he has um, been responsible for financing amazing agriculture instead of um, opium. You know, the poppy fields. And it's just such a range of like almonds, olives, you know, grapes. Um, you just can't even believe like what he's done for people there. And that's why there's so much gratitude for the king there, especially since um, the last prime minister and the current prime minister is very corrupt. So um, this is just an example of a kind of a, a Buddhist king. And I just want to suggest that as you listen to this, that you can tell that he is not happy with this prime minister. In fact, he thinks he's terrible. Um, So it's not like there's being a doormat here. He's he's saying something in the speech. It's It's his 80th birthday. And he's not ignoring that this guy is really terrible for Thailand. Um, but it's a celebration, and it's his 80th birthday, so this is the speech. So he's just come out of the hospital, and I'm just reading it as he said it. His, you know, his native language is Thai, and this is translated into uh, English. No matter what, I still have to give an explanation why I have to frequently visit the hospital. The newspapers keep reporting on the color of my suits. They reported that today on the way into the hospital, I wore pink. When coming out of the hospital, I was in blue. It sounded as if they were trying to find fault with me, why I had to change my suits. Well, I feel like changing my suits Sometimes. <laughs> this is a major speech, by the way. Like this is <laughs> if only we Bush or somebody would do this. You know? <laughs> it would be so much easier to vote for somebody. Um, 
Okay, well, I feel like changing my suit sometimes. Wearing only a uniform is quite boring. Look at the Prime Minister. He is always in a uniform. So boring. (laughs) Probably he might say, if he's bored, then maybe he should fire me. He pretended not to hear me say this. You You may say that I'm old. That's not exactly true. Actually, I am younger less. Tomorrow I will be 80. I hardly believe that I live till I'm 80. So whoever says that I'm old, I accept it. But the prime minister is boring. (laughs) Every time I see him, he is always in a white uniform. Actually, he should wear some other color. (laughs) Today I am wearing white, but I have suits in pink and yellow. In short, I am old, but I don't dress boringly. It goes on. (laughs) This is my favorite speech of all time, actually. (laughs) I think we should memorize it. (laughs) Today I am wearing something in gray, but this is not boring because I have a yellow tie, quite cute. It's probably good that it's not in pink. The other day I wore pink and it made quite a stir. Well, I could wear any color, really, green or red. But somebody said that red is my unlucky color. But I doubt it, because my mother was born on a Sunday, and so were my elder sister and brother. They were all born on Sunday, where red is the color of the day. My close aide was also born on a Sunday. Luckily that the prime minister was not born on a Sunday. (laughs) He was born on a Saturday, and the color of that day is purple. I, I don't mind if the prime minister would wear purple. <laughs> purple is not that bad. The other day I wore purple, too. <laughs> Actually, any color will do well for the prime minister. <laughs> but... The Prime Minister, he only wears white uniform every day. What a boring sight. (laughs) But I guess he is quite neat, though. I guess wearing a white uniform and being at work, it's not that boring, actually. That's an amazing way to, like, say somebody's not doing a good job. <laughs> because everybody knows what he's talking about. I mean, it's so amazing to me. So equanimity, it's like this unconditional acceptance, and it's, it's speaking out if we need to, or not. It's like... It's not about disconnection. It's not about passivity. So if we let ourselves care, if we let ourselves connect 
if we let ourselves be intimate, whether it's with our own experience or with another, we have to be willing to feel the pain of things not going how we want. That's insight. It's like we we get to see uncontrollability if we connect. So true connection is rare and beautiful. And we can either stay open to that or kill our hearts. And in terms of staying open, there has to be a willing to be disappointed or hurt. It's like that's the price of having an open heart. So I'd like to end with a um, quotation from Srinivasargadatta about love, if I can find it. It's an, a question and answer format. Question. The only difference between us seems to be that while I keep on saying that I do not know my real self, you maintain that you know it well. Is there any other difference between us? Maharaj, there is no difference between us, nor can I say that I know myself. I know that I am not describable nor definable. There is a vastness beyond the farthest reaches of the mind. That vastness is my home. That vastness is myself. And that vastness is love. Question, you see love everywhere, while I see hatred and suffering. The history of humanity is the history of murder, individual and collective. No other living being so delights in killing. Maharaj, if you go into the motives, you will find love. Love of oneself and of one's own. People fight for what they imagine they love. Surely their love must be real enough when they are ready to die for it. That's the question. Maharaj, love is boundless. What is limited to a few cannot be called love. Question, do you know such unlimited love? Yes, I do. How does it feel? All is loved and lovable. Nothing is excluded. Question, not even the ugly and the criminal? Maharaj, all is within my consciousness. All is my own. It is madness to split oneself through likes and dislikes. I am beyond both. I am not alienated. Everything we do is motivated by love. It's pretty powerful. Let's sit for a minute.
May we value love and wisdom. May our hearts abide in loving kindness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.